0: You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good
1: morning, everybody. Welcome to Radiotherapy. This morning we have a packed show for you. We'll be interviewing Simon Hughes, a comedian performing his one-man show, Man vs. Meth, in this year's Melbourne Comedy Festival. As you can tell by the title, Simon's got his own perspective on addiction, especially ice addiction. And we'll be talking a bit about it today before he goes home for a nap, prior to hosting his own show on a competing radio station. We're starting off, first up with a few bits of health news as ever, including some good news for our future citizens from the field of prenatal medicine, and then we'll launch into the program for today. After our interview with Simon, Lady Gaga will talk about Instagram, the perils of curated images and body positivity, women striking back with glitter, and SK's back with a discussion of the Stanford Prison Experiment. SK, I googled this after you told me about it. Uh, Grim
0: very grim and we'll hear all about about it this morning. Yes, uh, what happened in the field of psychology studies in the heady days before ethics committee oversight.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Grabe lurks within us all. I look forward to hearing your take on it. So, let's start with a bit of catch-up from um, the world of medicine.
2: Doctor, doctor, give me the news I gotta
1: Everyone's rocking out to that song in the studio here today. <laughs> I'm glad you're enjoying it.
0: <laughs> 25 years, we're still using the same cats. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, why would we ever update it when everyone <laughs> loves it so much? Um, I've just a co- got a couple of bits of news that I wanted to talk about today. Um, and my first catch-up is old news, but it had completely passed me by, so I don't know if it might have passed other people by. I stumbled on it during my own research, which involves measuring rates of congenital malformations in babies in Victoria and looking at risk factors. So turns out um, after a long period of worrying about low rates of vitamin B which is one of um, which is folate and iodine in pregnant women the Australian government decided to do something about it. Um, Now the reason why we worry about this is that low levels of folate in pregnancy can increase the risk of neural tube defects which include things like spina bifida Um, in babies and low levels of iodine can affect babies' eventual level of intelligence. So previously the public health message had been that any pregnant woman should take folate and other multivitamin supplements but you can only take supplements in pregnancy if you know you're pregnant Mm -hmm. and a lot of people don't necessarily know that from the very beginning Mm -hmm. and the other thing is if you live in a remote location or you don't have access to antenatal care you might not take supplements at all. So um, In 2009, actually, the Australian government took the step of fortifying bread with folate and adding iodine, and now they've been able to evaluate the effect of that 10 years later. Um, And the results are really astonishing. So overall, the rates of neural tube defects in Australia fell by 14%, which is huge. Um, And uh, particularly because in Australia, we have pretty good um, general healthcare, we've got pretty good nutrition Mm -hmm. Uh, and so anything that can make such a substantial impact on rates of neural tube defects is really, really amazing Mm -hmm. I think Um, but in particular populations which are more vulnerable than the rest of us um, the rates were even more impressive so in young people, so teenagers who became pregnant, the rates fell by 54% which is yeah. amazing. And in Aboriginal Torres Strait Islanders, particularly in people who lived in remote locations where perhaps they wouldn't have access yeah. to multivitamins, the rates fell by 74%. Whew. So it's yeah. huge. Like, yeah. you know, when I'm working in research at the moment, even a, a, you know, a reduction in any kind of adverse outcome by about 2%, that's amazing. Um, but 74%... Yeah, wow. Well. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like maybe we should be shouting this from the rooftops as one of those really big positive public health measures
0: Um, My knowledge of uh, the cause of neural tube defects is probably about 30 years old, uh, but uh, do, do we take from this that uh, folic acid and B12 deficiency are the cause of 75% potentially of all of these things, and what about the remainder? Are they, are they just random?
1: Well, I mean, I think things are just random until you figure them out, right? Yep. Um, that's why we use terms in medicine like idiosyncratic or um, idiopathic, because...
0: It's a, a smart-sounding way of saying we don't know. <laughs> exactly.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I, I figured that until we understand things better, these are the big, these are the big targets that we can aim at, Um, But, yeah, we always need to learn more about what's going on.
0: I believe some countries have taken it a bit further. I mean, uh, alcoholism causes thiamine deficiency and there's neurological complications of that. And I think in some countries they fortify beer with thiamine, so it's (laughs) sort of like giving the antidote with the poison. Yeah. Uh, And that reduces uh, rates of alcohol-related damage too.
1: Yeah, and I think if you think about it on a population basis, that would actually probably be a really effective way of... Uh, intervening. Yeah, intervening. would you have to put it in everything? Like, you'd have to put it in wine and you'd have to... <laughs> yeah, put <it> in but
0: <laughs> I guess, you know...
1: Tequila pe- show.
0: Yeah. I suppose so, but it's a harm minimization yeah. thing. You can't necessarily do it to everybody. But I suppose if you take that logic to the extreme, you're getting into almost Big Brother-type territory because, mm-hmm. you know, there's certain epidemi- epidemiological factors that are preventative uh, for risk of Alzheimer's disease, for example. Countries that have got high levels of lithium in the groundwater yes, have lower rates of this. Alzheimer's. Yes, so right. do we start adding lithium to the water mm. in much the same way as we fluoridate water at mm. the moment and look at the controversies around that? Mm. So uh, there's some sort of ethical ground that uh, to, to navigate there as well. But this this measure in, in relation to bread seems to have gotten through without any uh, adverse publicity or public well, outcry.
1: Well, that's right. I, I feel as though it actually hasn't got the publicity that it deserves.
3: That's that's what I'm just astonished about. You know, you, usually if it's a good news story with the government, you'd hear about it for months, wouldn't you, surely? Yeah, you
1: you <laughs> would think. And they've been so cautious about it. So they've waited until at least 10 years after the change to make sure yeah. that the impact isn't just like a statistical mm. blip. Um, and they're announcing it with a lot of caveats, but really it's so astonishing. Yes. So anyway. S- especially the Indigenous rates. like that yeah. 70, 74, was it? Mm. Oh, my gosh. Yep, massive. That's amazing. Yes. Um, my only other thing that I wanted to talk about in the news today was about um, treatment of leukaemia and, uh, and chronic ly- lymphocytic leukaemia and mantle cell lymphoma, in particular Melbourne researchers, who came up with a new drug in the 1980s at the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute, have now combined this... Medication which specifically targets a particular protein that protects um, CLL cells when they're produced by the body from being broken down um, with uh, an immune modifier, one of the newer drugs that have come on the market in the last sort of maybe 10 years, do you think?
0: It's a monoclonal antibody that they're combining it with. I think. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah that's right. So um, alone, both of these drugs are actually quite impressive in that they might help two out of ten people. Together, they seem to help maybe seven out of ten people who failed conventional chemotherapy or who have had a relapse after treatment with conventional chemotherapy. So that's kind of another super amazing, mm-hmm. you know, step forward for science. This what, week.
0: what What amazed me when I heard this story on the radio earlier this week was, you know, normally medical researchers are pretty circumspect when they're announcing their findings. You know, it's always lots of. Mm. and yep. requiring mm. further research, but to hear the researchers using terms such as, you know, this has knocked the ball out of the park. Yes.
1: yeah. As
0: far as this disease is concerned, is really uh, encouraging, isn't
1: it? Yeah, it's fabulous, particularly for such a disease with such a grim outlook. Mm. These people are, have very poor outcomes and, and now they don't. So, you know, it's good. Yay, science. It snaps for science. Mm. <laughs> okay. So... Having, having brought you up to speed now with all the little bits and pieces that we found in the last week. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RR in
2: Melbourne, Australia.
1: And now I want to start talking to Simon. Our next guest, Simon Hughes, hosts his own radio show and is appearing throughout April at the Colonial Hotel here in Melbourne on Lonsdale Street, performing his one-hour, one-man show, Man vs Meth. Simon Hughes.
2: Thanks for having me in the studio, everyone. Thanks, Perry.
1: (laughs) Welcome, welcome to Radiotherapy. But it's not just your one-man show that you're doing, are you? You just explained to me you're doing a million things this comedy festival.
2: (laughs) Yeah, we run a couple of showcases uh, from six till seven o'clock. It's um, sort of showcasing new talent that I've I've sort of handpicked after seeing other shows, giving them a bit of exposure, Uh, so people can come along and go, oh, wow, I might not see that person. I'll go and see that person. And then getting support for some really good headline uh, actors. Well, we actually had one of the writers from uh, The Chappelle Show, a show that I've loved many years, headline last night. And the energy uh, that we all experienced was phenomenal. It's nothing I've spent a long while or experienced.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. He's comedy royalty, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Really incredible. Someone yes. I've looked up to for a bit of inspiration over the years as well. So, oh, yeah, sounds... it was it was a bit of a a moment pinching myself going, "Oh my gosh, wow, I'm like 1 degree of separation away from a, a comedian that I've like idolized or at least tried to not mimic, but just taken a few leaves out of their book, so to speak." So, yeah, it was really uh, amazing to have that experience. So Yeah,
1: that does sound amazing.
2: Yeah, we have <laughs> two of them and then my own uh, solo show sort of piggybacking off that.
1: Right, okay. Yeah. And is that all at the Colonial Hotel?
2: Yeah, all at the Colonial yep. Hotel.
1: Okay. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about perhaps your one-man show.
2: Okay, well, it's called Man Versus Math mm. and I feel as though I've got a bit of an authority to speak about such a topic. So um, I wanted to bring light to a dark topic, so to speak, you know what I mean, like so people can actually laugh a bit about the stories, maybe relate because the sort of regardless of the symptom or the substance use its sort of there's a deeper core issue that we can all experience so even though i might be talking about the the substance being ice uh sometimes the behaviors or or the the, that surround the addiction can be relatable i guess so i try and bring that into my show and uh talk about other substances or drugs as well so people can maybe relate a little bit more because um some of the topics like I've done some jokes in the past and people sort of just sit there and they don't laugh whereas <laughs> my addict friends or recovery friends will sit down and go yeah that's happened to me as well you know so people it's it's been a practice over a few years of saying okay what can I get away with and test on the audience and then work out and sort of formulate into a nice little package that's got a nice message as well. Yeah I
1: suppose that, that's the thing about comedy a lot of it's about making
2: you laugh but some of it's about making you think right? Yeah, yeah. 100% making you think making you visualize and you know sit back and Sometimes I'm pretty intense, as you probably already gathered. So it's actually allowing them the moment to to take in that picture and then follow you on that journey before sort of jumping on the next thought train. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: that sounds really interesting. And, and what's the kind of response that you've gotten from your audiences
2: when it's you talk ph- about that stuff? Phenomenal. Yeah. Phenomenal. You know, and even like I get people reach out to me on the private as well afterwards just going, how did you do it? Because, um, you know, I, when I was working at rehab a couple of years ago, one of the young kids was like... Uh, Man, like, uh, there was a really messy unit in the electronic music scene, and to the driver of the car, and then uh, the driver said, "Oh, who was that?" He goes, "Oh, it's this one guy, Simon Hughes." And I was in the back, <laughs> and I just leaned through and went, "You meant me?" <laughs> and he goes, "Oh my gosh, I didn't even recognise you." And it, and then he stopped and he said, "You know what? You've done. You've given me hope." Oh. Yeah, you know what I mean? He's like, if you can do it, anyone can, because I really was bad.
0: How how bad did you get?
2: What was the low point and what problems did you run into as a result of your use? Like, I was... Like hanging around Woolworths and Coles, like trying to get the reduced chickens. You know what I mean? Like I'd be like going, "Oh, like that's my that was how I was eating." And and reduced cordial. I was living in a garage in Ringwood with mice and and spiders, and you know what I mean? Like it was. I actually talk about a, a debt collector came around to mess me up and realized that the way I was living was worse than what he was going to do to me. So <laughs> <laughs> he just said, "Oh, as you were, you know, <laughs> like I can't do anything. Like you're you're gone." <laughs>
3: You're
2: punishing yourself enough.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So so that sounds like kind of a rock bottom moment. Yeah. What did it take then for you to kind of get to the next step?
2: Well, we say in recovery sometimes you hit rock rock bottom and then pull a jackhammer out just to really see how far (laughs) down rock bottom is, you know what I mean? It's like I reckon I can go a bit harder. So it was was actually the reality of going to jail. Um, I I got caught um, uh, trafficking and then I was given a good behaviour bond um, and then... Yeah, basically it all sort of transpired out that I, I got done for trafficking mushrooms, of all things. And, uh, yeah, I know, right? Uh, I there and, and, are
0: reduced mushrooms from yeah, the Coles. Yeah, so. yeah, reduced.
2: <laughs> I love a good Swiss brown. Uh, <laughs> Can't stop me from it, but um, it was kind of a blessing in, in hindsight because uh, I was put out on remand, and then I got done for theft as well of two chicken wings and an apple drink from Woolworths. No. <laughs> yeah, I'm not even joking; like that actually happened, and I was ropeable at the time. Uh, I
1: would be ropeable too if I were a yeah, lawyer. Yeah. I, Don't they have diversion courts for exactly that?
2: Yeah, but uh, only a certain amount of times. You know what I mean? Like this is the second time I've been through, and because it was a second trafficking charge, they're like, nah, we we got to do something here." So they they held me in remand, and then that was the only time after two and a half years that was the only time i could admit to my mum and dad that i'd relapsed (laughs) you know what i mean i was like oh my gosh i'm gonna go to jail here um i better fess up and i like say i need some help because uh yeah so so until that point you were able to pretend to your mum and
1: dad that things were kind of on the improve
2: yeah and they had an idea something wasn't right you know what i mean because it it was hard Yeah, (laughs) yeah. yeah difficult and um it just like the, like the, before I relapsed, it was, I was like, I don't need recovery anymore. I've got it right. I got it sorted. And then the, literally the moment afterwards, I'd, I'd relapsed on ecstasy. So that, I'm like, it was terrible. Like I felt amazing, but my inner voices were just doing a number on me. The moment after I did that, my head was like, oh my gosh, you've relapsed. You're a piece of crap. You know mm. what I mean? Like mm. you're nothing now. And then I just, I went into that internal world. I couldn't share with anyone. And it just got, Worse and worse, and it took two and a half years before I reached out and said, I need help. Like, there were periods of more jackhammering, so to speak, down further and further before I went, Oh my God, like, okay. I'm not really going to flourish in the prison environment. I think I need some help here, you know? Like, uh, yeah. I
1: I can't imagine. So I have worked in a prison, but I I haven't actually been in a prison, like, overnight to sleep, and I found it scary just going in there.
2: Yeah, I'm a bit of a free spirit, so to speak. I don't know if you could say that. And even just being in remand was just like, nah, this is not... You know what I mean? It it was a scary experience, to say the least, Mm. let alone the the withdrawals and the cravings kicking in, because I honestly couldn't function... That's the biggest problem I found with ice was that I could not function without it. And it it wasn't the first time. It just slowly takes a hold until the point of gone. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like it's just like you lie in bed. You know those days when you just don't want to get out of bed? Mm. Times that by like 10 and the only cure, like if you've got a coffee headache, the only thing that's going to fix a coffee headache is a coffee. Well, the only thing that will get you not back where you were originally down to that point of functioning, you know what I mean? is another hit. Mm. Yeah, it's it's really powerful and like people say it's good. It's it's just powerful. That's why it's really bringing a lot of people to their knees quickly that's what i've discovered anyway
0: can i ask simon how you started because just hearing your talk you know you don't come across as a shy retiring type i mean uh, what was it that first led you to experiment with a stimulant like meth and in particular uh, you know as a psychiatrist i struggle with why people would choose to take a drug that they know there's a very high chance of making them
2: psychotic okay for me that it was marijuana was like they say it's a gateway drug and for me it was a gateway drug because everyone was telling us like teachers and everyone was saying oh it'll do bad things and you'll 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 duh, 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 you'll you'll stress out you'll freak out and then like the tough crowd or the you know the cool kids at school did it and then you're getting information from them like miss mis- conflicting information that they're saying oh my gosh like we had the munchies it was amazing it was cool mm-hmm. we just we laughed we giggled we felt really amazing our eyes went really red and then so it was just like okay well they're telling us the truth yeah. where they're our friends but these guys are telling this and for me it was a couple of relationship breakdowns and i i kind of had stuff uh, when I was younger, happened to me, and I felt a bit like what do you call like I felt like I was a uh, what do you call it a, a special snowflake that no one else yeah. knew my problems. You know what I mean? And then
1: we're all one of those. Yeah, of course.
2: Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> four or five in here. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. So for me, it was like I, I had a relationship breakdown, and it was like the friends that said weed was really good, and marijuana was really good. It, it works initially. It just sort of I call it like an etch a sketch on all your emotions and feelings. It just sort of just wiped them all away. And and then it sort of and then for a period that's kind of how it let out. But then I got into more relationship troubles down the track. And and it's like marijuana didn't sort of put a band-aid over that problem anymore. So Mm -hmm. the same friends that were the same that said marijuana works we're like oh you should give ecstasy a go and mm, yeah. give oh you're feeling down give at uh, try a pill try some mdma and oh my gosh like,
3: bigger bandage yeah, yeah bigger bandage
2: but sort of more repercussions for using that bigger yeah. bandage because it's just sort of just compartmentalizes it away into this i'm not going and you slowly over these courses of time don't learn how to process emotions and behaviors and i found the more that i went through the less i i just wanted so i was like oh my gosh i need to just knock myself out or I need to make... It's like they're these quick little pseudo solutions for like a deeper core emotional problem. So it just ever so slowly ate away at me until the point of uh, I was using speed and then the speed wasn't doing much for me anymore and then basically uh, people like, oh, well, you're wasting too much money spending speed. You should give ice a go. And at the same time... I'm thinking, well, I'm taking my... Because I lost my mind on marijuana and ended up in a mental institution. Like, I was convincing myself that as long as I take my antipsychotic medication, I'm not wigging out on speed, I should be okay. You know what I mean? It was just insanity. And it just... You start just... Oh, sorry. Yeah, just yeah. really silly ideas seem normal to you at the time. And then yeah. I look back now and go, that was crazy.
1: It, it's interesting to me because at the moment I work in a major metropolitan hospital in the emergency department, in a fairly wealthy part of Melbourne. And actually, a lot of people come in with that story. They're very high functioning. They've all got careers and relationships, and they just they just crash. Mm. So um, the, the bandages get bigger and bigger, as you say. Mm. And then at a certain point, there's just nothing that's going to paper over that. No. Yeah. No,
2: and that's when it's like an engine, you know, and all the warning lights start showing up on the dash, and then yeah. it's like, oh, okay, now, okay, there's gonna, be, it's gonna conk out. Yeah, you know? that happened um, to
1: me actually on a freeway. My, 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 <laughs> my, my car just stopped, and, and not the you just went. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's no, sorry to freak you car, out. No, everybody, I was not <laughs> taking drugs on the freeway. My car stopped. <laughs> And the computer <laughs> went blank. And um, I imagine that's the experience
2: that when you're on ice, right? Yeah, and just then that's when you kind of need to call out for help. Yeah, You know what I mean? It's like, that's like row side assistance. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: Excellent metaphor there. Yeah.
2: But I really can equate to that. But it's like you put a Band-Aid over the, the warning light and go, nah, we're cool. Mm. We've got another few hundred Ks in this. And then all of a sudden the, the engine's smoking. Yeah. Someone leads in the window and goes, mate, your car's blowing smoke. You're like, what do you know? What do you know? Your car's crap anyway, you know, yeah, as a metaphor. And you keep keep you eyes driving yeah. your own yeah. engine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: And then kaboom.
2: Yeah. Mm. And, and, and Oh, so you go. Oh, just
0: another another An observation followed by a question. I mean, I've, I've had associations with comedians over the years and a lot of them seem to be morbidly depressed. That's the observation. Uh, the question is, you know, through choosing to tell your story through the medium of comedy, to what extent is what you're doing with your show therapeutic for you? Does, does it help you doing that?
2: It really does. Um, is the word cathartic? It's like it, it just... It's like giving back because they say about when you help others, you help yourself. And for me, like I get a bit of a not an ego boost, but a bit of a like, I guess, a spiritual boost when someone like messages me online and goes, dude, I need some help. Like I don't feel comfortable talking about this. And for me, it also sort of puts it out there because when I that time I relapsed, I wasn't telling one about it. And for me, it sort of solidifies my uh, position in being in recovery now. It's like, mm-hmm. I need to protect this. I need... It's not about me anymore. It's about staying on the path so others can go, I need to stay on that path too. Because if I deviate from the path now, it's it'll a lot of people will lose faith because I always get feedback going, wow, we don't even recognise you now, you know?
3: And do you think a part of that is because that you would have loved to have someone like that when you were going oh, through that? Hello. <laughs> through
2: yeah. that journey yourself? Definitely. Yeah. And uh, there was... One of my psychologists many years ago was one of the first people to really cut through to me when he was also in recovery. He had about mm. 26 uh, years up and uh, he just sat down and he goes, I understand you because I am you. You know what I mean? I was like, oh, my gosh, he was German. And he just he used to come up with the most amazing sayings. He'd be like, uh, and you think you have the power to take on the universe? And I he was like, yes, this, I do. Yeah, what are you talking yeah.
3: about?
2: I'm a special snowflake. <laughs> yeah, a very <laughs> special snowflake. And he just had this crazy German laugh and it was just, yeah, really cool. Unfortunately, um, he passed away of a heart attack, but at least he died. Dumb clean which is amazing but i yeah. spent 17 months of really like seeing nearly every week yeah. just to sort of deal with that underlying stuff as well as well as um slowly sort of coaxing myself off the medication because i needed to be at the time yeah
1: yeah so i wanted to ask you a little bit about that you mentioned just before that you did actually end up in a psychiatric hospital a long time ago as a consequence of your drug use can you yes. tell me a little bit about that are you able to just yeah talk sure about
2: that yeah sure um I I was in a high-stress high sales job and uh, I was medicating, self-medicating with marijuana and it was like the engine was going, you know, it was clonking out and I basically, yeah, I, I thought I was Jesus Christ on The Truman Show. I think they call it the Ma- Messiah Complex, but this was just... Really messy, so I ended up running around the streets, covering myself in mud because I thought, like you know, in the Predator movie where like he covers himself in mud for the Predator not to see him. So I was like, I thought if I block my heat singles out, no one will see me. Though. it was just crazy, like yeah, it, sounds- yeah, it was, and like I, I got I got put into hospital, and then like. The person that was looking after me I said oh who are you it was the worst thing to say to me he goes I'm with the agency you know what I mean oh, like no. you know how they say that and I'm like <laughs> and you you're with the, the agency cameras? too <laughs> yeah oh, and I no. freaked so I ended up going and asking I need a shower I'm freaking out so I wrapped myself in a towel like a like a Burka kind of a thing I put gum boots on and I got out again and that that's where it, like, like they kept me against my will and then that and then I, I ended up in like a, a psychiatric ward and it took a long while and a lot of medication to sort of subdue those crazy thoughts because it was, yeah, it was really scary.
0: And and what was your experience of being an involuntary patient in a public psychiatric hospital?
2: (sighs) Yeah, scary. I felt guilty because I thought, wow, I'm in here because of drugs and there's people in here that are genuinely have just they're just sort of born with these problems you know what i mean i was like oh my god i've done this to myself in a way but then i met other people with the messiah complex as well and we're like how can you be jesus if i'm jesus you know what i mean i'd
0: I'd always wondered what would happen in a psych hospital when that happens yeah so
2: what did happen it just we just we doubted each other so to speak we were just like oh it just wasn't it was really hard to compute in fact a guy knocked me out i was in the high dependency high dependency unit and then he knocked me out so i got to go into the that's sort of how i got out of there but i was restrained I don't remember any of that. I just remember just saying hi to a guy and then just went bang. I guess he thought he was the, like, there oh. can only be one.
0: <laughs> Look, I guess you'd be surprised in terms of the demographics of who gets admitted nowadays. I know when I trained, we saw virtually no one who was using meth at that time, mm. but now... Half of the wards are are full of people who are just detoxing from meth, having had an acute psychosis. Yep,
1: yep, that's really true. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Now we're going to talk to Lady Gaga about Instagram, positivity and glitter. Tell me.
3: You look at me like such a millennial. (laughs) You are a
1: millennial. You're a millennial. I'm in denial.
3: (laughs) So I was uh, telling you over coffee a bit earlier, Perry. Um <laughs> mainly because I walked in covered in glitter which is you know not uncommon I guess when I walk into this studio but um, yesterday I participated in a photo shoot for um, let's say a movement I guess called Positively Glittered. Um, So a few of my friends um, were involved in this from the get-go and um, essentially they just wanted to be able to celebrate their bodies um, in an uncensored uh, way because Instagram um, a lot of the time is full of lots of curated content um, with you know airbrushing and you know stylistic posing yeah, and perfect food that's, that's right. what I see on Instagram that's what you choose Breakfast. to follow and I respect that <laughs> no but it's it's exactly the same you know everything is um put in a way you know like at ad- any type of advertising I guess but Instagram is becoming less about in my opinion um becoming less about um just organic content and you know pictures that you've taken on your phone or... Mm. uh, And and it's much more used for advertising and...
1: um you Influences. Know, this is That's I've never right. heard of this term, but there are people who influence on people
3: Instagram. People get paid, yeah, to yeah. put post pretty pictures and you know stylized photos of themselves, their family, their partner, their dog. Mm. Oh, My gosh, the dogs! Mm. <laughs> mm. So I guess um, this um, movement or group of women exist um, to disrupt that in some kind of way. So um, women who participate in um, these photo shoots do so for their own. Um, uh, I don't want to say pleasure it's more for um, the promoting different body types um, that you would usually see within your feed so um, there are women that are larger than you may typically see on an Instagram story um, there are women that are smaller there are um, di- not necessarily many diverse in terms of culturally diverse um, but it's just A lot of different bodies being represented um, and proudly so, uh, which is, I guess, the the best part about the whole thing. So there was a photo shoot yesterday that um, I went along to. Where did you go? We went to Dean um, in regional Victoria, which is, I think, about an hour and a half outside of Melbourne. It's a beautiful countryside. Oh, my gosh. It was stunning. It was stunningly beautiful yesterday. We were so lucky with the temperamental... Victorian weather.
0: I've, I've detected a contradiction in what you're saying. What right? is it? S- I mean,
3: what is it, SK?
0: The point of the photo shoot was to rebel against the stylized sort of photos that people put up on Instagram. Yeah, that's right. Yet instead of staying home and glittering yourself up and taking out a <laughs> selfie on your phone, you went to organ- an organised photo shoot to take stylized photos. <laughs> <of you> being... <laughs> okay, I can see why
3: you would understand it. S- okay, mm. let me explain. So it was. Mo- you should have seen the looks on some of the people's faces as they were driving past whilst we were in the middle of the paddock. It wasn't in any way like a um, seg- segregated, you know, no shame, oh, you know, no one can look at us, this, that, and the other. It was more that um, it was a way of feeling beautiful in yourself um, in the middle of the paddock. And so, sorry,
1: you should also know that um, these women were wearing only glitter at this point.
0: Yeah, I'd be much more comfortable doing that in the privacy of my own home. Right, okay. And well, taking an Instagram th- selfie and...
1: <laughs> <laughs> What's I Instagram? I I can't comment because, you know, these are, these are young people and I don't really know. Yeah. But my view is that possibly they're reclaiming the... The stylizing for themselves, so rather than um, some commercial entity deciding what's beautiful and what's not, and then providing an airbrushed version of it for public consumption, it was these women um, who'd hired their own photographer, found their own location, covered themselves in beautiful glitter and amazing costumes, and then and then put out their own images. is that's, that right
3: That's completely right, Perry, thank you for articulating that in such a beautiful way <laughs> and I guess it was um, Look, at the end of the day, if you're taking photos of yourself covered in glitter, you want them to look pretty. <laughs> <laughs> but it's what you, mean by you would that. cover I, yourself in that, yeah.
0: like, like the predator. Yeah.
3: Like, exactly. <laughs> like, Simon would have been able to give us some tips
0: on that. <laughs> How to keep it
1: thought?
3: stuck
2: on?
1: Yeah, but, who would have thought we could reference your show when we were talking about <laughs> naked ladies in the country covered <laughs> in glitter? <laughs> wow.
3: There you go. (laughs) So I guess I guess SK just to clarify the the differences um, that the um, group are trying to portray um, are more to do in bodily diversity um, as opposed to a stock standard um, body type that you would tend to see um, on social media feeds. And um, like for example, there was one participant yesterday who'd lost I think it was something like forty kilos and had so much loose skin like hanging from their body and was so proud to be standing there completely naked, covered in glitter like, to be photographed. Um, and that's just not something you see every day. Um. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I would second that. I think, yeah, yeah and so is- I, that's why the group exists is to um, provide look, similar, I guess, to what you were saying, Simon, um, people who are in that position may not necessarily, um, or you know, who look like that may not see themselves mm. um, in advertising. They may not see themselves um, I've, I've moved somewhat
0: things. further along the spectrum of understanding
3: now. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad. But, you know, making it relatable, like you said yeah, before, totally. Simon.
1: Yeah, mm. absolutely. Okay, look, we might have to move on very reluctantly from both of those experiences. I just wanted to make a, um, a brief point about the, the access that people might have to your show, Simon. So they need to buy a ticket for...
2: The Kings of Comedy showcases? Yes. Uh, they can do online... Um, We've nailed the web domain. It's Um, (laughs) cock.lol. That's K-O-C Excellent. Okay. Uh, Everything's on there. Uh, And my Man Versus Math show uh, is actually, it's free entry. And it's kind of like the Lentils philosophy. If anyone's been to Lentils, anything, you just pay what you feel the show's worth at the end. So it just makes it accessible to everyone, you know? So it just, and it it puts less pressure on me as well. Uh, Let's be honest. So I can go, well, they don't have to pay anything. Uh, Let's give them a good show either way. You know what I mean? So uh, yeah, it was my way of making it accessible so that people might not be able to afford the show can still come along, maybe get that message as well, or at least have a laugh at what they might not have for a while.
1: Fantastic. Okay, thank you very much. Now we're talking to SK about a particularly unpleasant experiment, which sort of demonstrates that we all have this evil lurking within us.
0: Yes, what evil lurks within the hearts of men. The the Stanford Prison Experiment is a psychology classic. I don't think anybody who's done a psychology degree wouldn't have heard of this or used it as a case discussion in their uh, Psych 101 studies. But uh, they have made a film about the Stanford Prison Experiment, imaginatively titled The Stanford Prison Experiment. Mm. Uh, it's available Makes it on easy Netflix. To yeah. That's right, which yeah. is where I saw it. And uh, it came out in 2015. 15. It stars uh, Billy Crudup. I'm always unsure how to pronounce his name, but he's one of those actors that you've heard the name but can never, never quite place. But, uh, oh, no, he's,
1: he's amazing.
0: He's perhaps better known as be- having been the male lead last year in Alien Covenant. But anyway, in, in the Stanford Prison Experiment, good. he plays a, a psychology professor called Philip Zimbardo who uh, set this experiment up uh, during a term break in Stanford University in 1971. And uh, what he did, basically, he was trying to design an experiment to show the effects of individu- on individuals of their having perceived power in a formal structure. And basically, he uh, took the opportunity to convert uh, a series of hallways in the psychology department in Stanford into a mock-up of a prison. He sort of put plywood boards up uh, to blank out offices. He converted offices into cells and put bars in there put mattresses on the floor, three to a room. He created a solitary confinement cell in a broom closet sort of thing. And he sought uh, volunteers to participate in what was planned to be a two-week experiment. He placed an an advertisement in the newspaper advertising for 24 individuals to be paid what was then quite a princely sum of $15 a day Mm. in 1971 to be randomly assigned to become either a prison guard or a prisoner just to see what the dynamics would be and what events would play out. Uh, participants were screened uh, for psychological problems yes. prior to uh, being enrolled and they were randomised, literally by the flick of a coin, to play the role of either a prison inmate or a prison guard for two weeks. And uh, the entire experiment was filmed, Uh audio recordings were made they had uh, microphones in the prison cell so they could hear what the prisoners discussed and uh, what they found was really fascinating most of this information i actually got off the official website of the stanford prison experiment which is still running after many many years so What happens when you get university students and you make half of them prison guards and half of them prisoners? Nothing good. Nothing good. Mm. They they weren't expecting, you know, a a, a dramatic result from this experiment and and perhaps the only day that ran according to plan in the study was day one, which was fairly... (laughs) boring. Right. But uh, they, they went to some lengths to try and faithfully recreate the prison experience. The Those who'd been assigned to become prisoners, they were actually arrested by the local police <laughs> department who turned up in their cruisers one Sunday morning. They took them off to what was actually the local jail where they were arraigned and read their rights and then they were transported with hoods over their heads with to over in Stanford University where they were stripped naked, they were sprayed for de-lousing, they were put in uh, essentially dress-type smocks to dehumanise them, to simulate the experience of having their heads shaved. They were made to wear women's pantyhose over their heads uh, and they were not allowed to be addressed by their names. They were only Mm. referred to by their prison numbers. Mm. And uh, this sort of dynamic was reinforced from day one. Uh, The prison guards got them to do the sort of things that they get to do to prisoners in real prisons. They had to stand there for roll call and number off by their numbers. The first day it was a bit jokey as everybody was finding their place in the hierarchy but on day two there was a full on prison rebellion.
3: Oh my God.
0: <laughs> the the prisoners barricaded their cells with mattresses they wouldn't allow the guards to uh, discipline them in any way just as a rebellion against the discipline that was imposed. So the prison guards were left with this dilemma. This this rebellion happened on the night shift overnight in the prison and when the day shift of guards came on they were really pissed off that the night shift had slacked off and allowed this to happen Uh, the night shift volunteered to stay around and break the rebellion and uh, eventually they they broke into the cells uh, forcing the prisoners away from the bars by spraying carbon dioxide from a fire extinguisher on them (laughs) And the the prisoners were punished for having done this Mm. and the guards stepped up their psychological abuse of the prisoners and had them doing push-ups as punishment. They were putting people into solitary. They were turning the prisoners against each other by suggesting that one or other might be an informant. They created privileges cells Mm. where certain prisoners who behaved well could have privileges such as better food or reading materials and the prisoners with the privileges were sort of scapegoated by by the hardcore prisoners who didn't have any privileges and you saw a real true prison dynamic uh, developing.
1: Yeah, and actually, um, when I was reading about this, so I could understand a little bit about it before we talked about it on air, this was actually prompted by some research that was requested by uh, the Department of Justice. I think in America, they actually wanted to know how they could improve the way that their prisons were run and to reduce the risk of prison riots and rebellions, which were pretty common. So, in fact, it had kind of an altruistic purpose. If, if yeah, you yeah, it was say funded
0: that. by the uh, the U.S. Office of Naval Research, who right. noticed that yeah. in their uh, prison facilities in the military, there were there were between guards and prisoners. Yeah. But, yeah, you get into this sort of... Uh a chicken and the egg type situation mm. because although that was the intent to see what sort of things could be done to improve prisons, the prison just became like any other prison.
1: Oh, it sounds like it got bad really yeah. fast.
0: Mm. And it's really easy to see if if these are the techniques that are used in prisons to keep the prisoners fighting amongst themselves rather than fighting with the guards. Uh, that's one of the dynamics that does make prison such an unpleasant place to be. You know, mm. conflict is almost encouraged amongst the prisoners because takes the heat off the authorities Mm. Mm. and it wasn't only the prisoners and the guards who bought into this but the actual psychologists who were running the experiment bought into it as well Uh, there was uh one prisoner who basically became acutely psychologically distressed after 36 hours in this experiment and had to be released. And a rumour started circulating amongst the other prisoners that uh, the released prisoner was going to orchestrate a prison breakout and bring a whole lot of friends Mm. in to bust the other prisoners out. And the psychologists running the experiment got wind of this and, you know, instead of defusing the situation or addressing the issue directly, they went through the elaborate subterfuge of relocating the prison to a different floor oh my within Stanford uh, returning the basement to its pre prison conditions and the lead psychologist running the experiment sat down there for the evening with the expectation that when these the breakout crew arrived he'd say that oh the experiment's over and everybody's gone home. So they really bought into it. Uh, they had a, a, a parole board organised as well. Uh, one of one of the advisers to the experiment was an ex uh, San Quentin inmate who'd done seventeen years for attempted murder or something, and and I'm he took on casual. the role as president of the parole board. And the prisoners went in front of the board and were requesting early release for good behaviour. And even this prison advisor who'd spent time himself found himself reliving the role of parole board president Mm -hmm. and denying all of these... Prisoners' parole in wow. much the same way that he had been denied it, and the prisoners actually accepted the the decisions of the parole board, uh, despite having had full knowledge that they were free to leave at yeah. any time. They sort of really internalised the rules and the structure of the experiment and although theoretically they had the freedom to leave they didn't exercise that they just chose to remain in what was frankly an abusive situation
1: mm. and the, by this time they were completely demoralized right they were just numbers
0: they got completely demoralized yeah. really very quickly yeah. uh, a number of them experienced acute psychological distress during the experiment uh And again, interestingly, in the dynamics of prisons, there was a a prison visit day organised where family and friends could come in. And uh, the, the prison guards you know, cleaned the prisoners up for this. The psychologists who are running the experiment put on better food for the day just so that the families would think that their loved ones were being well taken care of. And you, you can imagine that happening in a real prison as well.
1: So um, I think this is why I find such difficulty getting my projects through ethics boards because people have done this sort of stuff <coughs> in the past. And I well, think this
0: was actually approved by uh, a university research ethics committee. But uh, it was this experiment and its adverse outcomes that actually led to a a great modification in the way that ethics committees conduct their business because nowadays this just wouldn't get through. Mm. Nowadays, you know, an experiment that uh, doesn't balance the risks of potential harm and potential good would just get thrown out but this was was approved i think the the sum of 15 dollars a day uh although it doesn't sound much to modern audiences would have been seen back in in a modern ethics environment as being an unreasonable inducement to participate as Mm. well Mm -hmm. so providing providing a financial incentive for, for people to to join in but yeah it did provoke changes in the way we we do experiments it was done for good reasons as you say and it uh A related experiment was done back in the 1960s. It's the so-called Milgram Mm. experiment, which is another psychology classic. I always remember the Milgram experiment best from an episode of The Simpsons where all the family members are being seen by a psychologist (laughs) and they have to administer each other electric (laughs) shocks.
1: What happens? Just well, then the I Simpsons, of it. course,
0: they all administer each other electric shocks. But okay. the structure of the Milgram experiment was really uh, set up to see how people are likely mm. to behave mm. when they are Sorry. receiving instructions from a perceived authority figure. And this was obviously in the post-war years where people were struggling to understand the behaviour of prison card guard guards prison camp guards mm. in the, the Holocaust situation, for example, you know, the argument that uh, essentially good people can be made to participate <coughs> Excuse me, in really bad things. And the structure of the Milgram experiment was you had a, a volunteer in a room who were to pretend that whenever the research participant pressed a button, that they would pretend that they're receiving an electric shock. So a researcher would take another volunteer who didn't know that the shocks weren't real and they would instruct them if the uh, mock participant failed to comply with with an instruction which involved performance on a learning task to administer an electric shock. And the people thought that they were giving real electric shocks And they kept increasing the the voltage, voltage. you know, to the the point that uh, would have been fatal. I mean, the maximum theoretical voltage was like 450 volts, so twice the supply of a a domestic electrical power outlet. And uh, people, although they were clearly distressed when they were administering these mock shocks, you know, they had their physiological parameters monitored. That they were sweating, they were biting their lips, they were psychologically tense, but they still still did it. They Mm. still did it.
1: So, from all of this, is a conclusion that prisons are always going to result in brutalisation of inmates? Because that's the suggestion from both of those experiments. If you give people power to harm other people, then people are going to get harmed.
0: Well, so well, certainly that was Zimbardo's conclusion from it, and, and he had one of these sort of... Uh I have found it moments after the experiment was eventually shut down when one of his students just commented on how inhumane it was. He then went on to become an advocate for the cause, and he actually uh, was involved in the debriefings around the Abu Ghraib experiences from the Iraq war, mm. where, you know, you saw these uh, horrendous photos of abuse by the military prison guards on the Abu Ghraib inmates. So that's certainly his view. Mm. Uh Modern psychologists have attempted to sort of deconstruct how he constructed the experiment, and uh, it's felt that the way he set it up introduced certain sources of bias, like his ad in the newspaper was for people who wanted to participate in a prison experiment. Mm -hmm. So maybe you've got a certain type of person responding Mm, on that basis. Mm -hmm. Self-selection. So uh, structurally flawed, but, yeah, that's very much... Uh, Zagardo's position. He, he has gone on to become an advocate for prison reform in the US, uh, just running the argument that if you treat people in an inhumane fashion, you're going to generate exactly the sort of behaviours that are likely to land you in prison again in in future years and, and that that is a, a counterproductive way to proceed in a prison system in the States that's got about 2 million people within mm. it at any one time. Mm. So... Uh, his eyes were opened by it, and uh, the experiment did serve for a limited amount of prison reform. A couple of weeks after the experiment ended, there was a, a massive riot at the uh, the Attica prison in California, in which a number of guards and inmates died, and uh, that was very much in the news at that time. What the take home was to me was just how quickly this experiment broke down. It was intended to run for two weeks; it had to
2: be stopped after six days. Mm. Can I just quickly say that I'm so glad I didn't Seek my rehabilitation through that environment as well because I really, <laughs> absolutely, I, it just wouldn't have worked. <laughs> no, you know, I so, it wouldn't have been
1: very yeah,
2: well, can you to your psychological
1: recovery
0: quickly <laughs> on the experience in Roman, Did you see those sort of dynamics played out in the modern sense?
2: Yeah, in a way, yeah. There the, was the, the, the doors were clanged and you know it was just a really uncomfortable environment when we didn't want to be bothered. The doors were knocked and then when we wanted attention, no one sort of it was just or I could feel that it was just a really nasty environment and. Uh, yeah, it's not one that I feel would have rehabilitated me from my problems, you know, so I'm really glad I got the other pathway to deal with the underlying issues instead of just punishing me for mm. what I did, yeah.
1: Oh, amazing, so much so much to talk about. I feel like maybe we, we need to discuss some of these things next time. Thank you very much, everybody. Bye from Radiotherapy.